Hi everyone, welcome to the Neurodiverse Lawyer Podcast. My name is Amelia and I'm an autistic and dyspraxic future Magic Circle trainee. This podcast is intended to provide a safe space for people to discuss neurodiversity and mental health in the legal profession, provide support and advocate for change. Please be aware that we may discuss triggering topics like mental health during this episode. We're a team of over 50 people who work completely on a volunteer basis. This podcast is just one of the many things we do. We also have a website with free resources and a blog, an Instagram at NeuroDiverseLawyer and upcoming events and a guidebook. Please contact us on projects at NeuroDiverseLawyer.co.uk if you want to get involved. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Neurodiverse Lawyer podcast. Today I'm very happy to be joined by Adam and Safia from Geldards. Geldards is a full service law firm with four offices across the UK. It has clients across corporate, finance, public sector and charities, as well as private client work. I'm very happy to have both of you on today to discuss everything from Adam's personal journey, being a neurodivergent partner, to the firm's approach to neurodiversity. So without further ado, um, Adam, do you just want to kick us off by introducing yourself um, and then Safia, if you want to give an introduction as well? Yes, sure. Um, so my name's Adam. I, I've i been a, uh, sorry, I mean, um, Emily, you can amend this as you go. Um, so my name's Adam. Um, I'm the partner and the head of the education team um, at Geldods. I've been doing this area of law for, I think, around about 16 years. Um, and essentially what I do is special educational needs law, uh, as well as, uh, kind of education law, um, as a whole, I kind of got into this area of law originally, uh, because of my own needs. So I'm severely dyslexic and I suppose I always looked at it from the point of view of being a kind of student in a classroom, um, not getting the right kind of support, um, and not getting the, the best of treatments, both from, from teachers and, and other students. And then I suppose later on, um, so I have, I have my own child who has um, autism. So it's mm-hmm. it's interesting, I suppose, in some respects that it's gone full circle. So I'm getting it from that side as well, kind of understanding mm. how it is to be a parent of a child with special educational needs as, as well as being mm. that child in the classroom themselves. So, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, Safia? Um, so I'm Safia. Um, I'm not neurodivergent myself, um, but I work in the recruitment team um, for Geldard. So we I deal with the recruitment at all different levels. Um, so always looking at kind of people from different backgrounds who can think differently. Um, and that definitely falls under a bit of the neurodivergence. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you both for coming on today. Um, so I thought we'd just start with a little bit about your personal journey, Adam. So do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about um, perhaps your diagnosis journey um, and also what your journey has been um, into this stage of your legal career? Okay, yeah, I, I, was, I was looking at that question before I came on um, and I was thinking I could probably we give you a, a proper um, paperback right book on that. Um, but I'll, try, <laughs> I'll try and summarise. So I suppose the kind of early signs of me having difficulty was with my hearing. So I had something when I was, I was a very young child called um, glue ear, which had basically affected my ability to hear what people were saying. And if you have glue ear from a very young age, it basically, a lot of people with glue ear, they become very good at um, kind of understanding what people are saying without fully understanding. And they're very good at masking. So from an early age, I probably could hear like hearing underwater, which obviously impacted on my ability to understand what people were saying. A lot of a lot of impact on, I suppose, my understanding of people's intention. But obviously, the biggest thing it had an impact on when I started to, to kind of get to school age was my kind of early development of writing and literacy. Um, and I th- I think my glue got picked up when I was in about when I was about six or seven. And then from there, I later, within a year, got diagnosed with uh, dyslexia. So I had a a number of things called grommets put in my ears um, to help me kind of hear and help my ears drain properly. Um, So because of that, um, I suppose in those early years, because I wasn't hearing properly, there's a lot of that, I suppose, early development that I missed out on. Um, And then when I was at school from an early age, I I had a lot of issues. in terms of, I suppose, acting out um, at school when I was younger. 
um, before I had that kind of diagnosis. I think in hindsight, you, you tend to find that acting out is as a way of communicating when you don't say have the words or kind of understanding or frustration to say what you think. Um, so there was a lot of suspensions, a lot of discussions with my parents over, I suppose, whether I should be at the school at all. And my parents moved me to a different setting. And in that setting, I had smaller classes. It's still kind of mainstream. Um, and in that setting, they, I think they had a better understanding of need. So that's where I kind of got picked up on my hearing issues and also my dyslexia. And then I had dyslexia teaching put in place for me on a weekly basis, but that just wasn't enough to kind of bridge the gap, I suppose, in my difficulties. So then from about the age of um, eight or nine, I uh, went to a specialist dyslexic school called Appleford, which is in Wiltshire, which I attended for three years. And when I was there, I, I did bridge quite a lot of the gap um, between me and my peers, enough to transfer. I went to a small independent mainstream school, which had a dyslexia unit after that. And I did very well there, enough to kind of do my GCSEs and A-levels. And then I got to the end of that. And I was already thinking at that stage that I'd want to go down the route of um, law. Um, I've always been interested in kind of helping and representing others. and. Interestingly, my, my father himself is specialised in, in this area in terms of special needs because of me and my brother. So it seemed like a natural progression to kind of help those who didn't get all the support that I do uh, or did get the, the right kind of support. So that kind of led me into wanting to go down the law route. And to say it was a struggle would be an underestimate, to underestimate the situation. Um as sometimes I really, some stages I really question whether the law was the right kind of route for me. Um, as you, as you probably understand yourself, like there's a lot of misunderstanding of what dyslexia is. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about neurodiversity. Um, there's a lot of people who just don't really care, and um, I think that led to me kind of not getting the kind of, I suppose, adjustments that I needed to start off with. Um, but once I started getting there and once I started to really figure out how I work best and the support I needed and, you know, what made me good at what I, um, what later made me good at being a lawyer, I suppose. I think when they started to come together, that's when my kind of law career started to um, be more sustainable and um, allow me to kind of get to the stage where I have to Thank you for that. I think it's interesting with the glue ear because I had it as a child as well and it also meant that a lot of the, I think, more obvious signs of neurodivergency were swept under the carpet because it was easier to attribute them to the glue ear. I think it's really interesting how your neurodivergency has kind of fed in and formed part of your legal career. But on the flip side of that, one thing that I thought it would be interesting to get your opinion on is whether working in Sen has helped you in terms of accepting and understanding your own neurodivergency. I remember being one of the only people when I was trying to become a lawyer saying that I wanted to specialise in this area. And I really generally wanted to be in this area of law because I, I felt very fortunate to have the family that I did around me, which allowed me to kind of get to where I, I needed to be. Um, I've always loved doing that. It's what I'm passionate about. That's why I really enjoy kind of helping other families with special educational needs. I think the real, the real I've always been able to empathize with my clients because of my own struggles. But the real thing which got to me was kind of being the parent in the classroom and someone else talking about your own child and I'd never thought at that stage of being in that kind of conversation of if I don't get this right, you know, where is my child's education going? What is their future prospects? That's something I'd never had to deal with or even thought of, even though I'd been working in the area of law, I think, at that stage for about um, about 10 years. Until it's your own child, it, it just gives you a very different understanding of the whole situation. Yeah. is it? I assume it's quite difficult then working in the area, knowing the effects that some of this stuff must have had on your own childhood and also on your own child's childhood. Yeah, it is really frustrating. It's really frustrating to see, you know, a lot of people not getting the support that they, sh- they should have. Um, I think early intervention is really key 
with any child with special educational needs. Um, and what's really frustrating is just how many people still are not getting that support quick enough. And as a consequence, I, I think it leads to a lot of disengagement and learning, which you kind of have to address. But also, I think because they don't get that support early enough, I actually think it can often worsen the kind of effects of their needs in terms of their ability to make progress. So that's my biggest frustration. The worst is when you get a case where, say, a child should have had a, an EHC plan much earlier and you're coming in after a lot of the damage is done. The best kind of cases is when you're in early where you can really kind of ensure that that doesn't even happen. Um, and I think, you know, we are getting better at diagnosis as well. So um, like, for instance, I think um, a lot of girls with autism are still getting diagnosed too late. And it's really frustrating because of the kind of impact and damage that has on their kind of um, mental health. And I think it's, it, it's, it's really important that we really look at that and kind of address that as well. Yeah, I agree. It's really, really important. I and mean, I got diagnosed as autistic at 23. So there we go. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it, for sure. It's and as more research is coming so. out and we're getting rid of some of the, the gender biases and we're starting to see the prevalence of, I guess, it's just individuals, expert by experience um, speaking up. We are getting more and more, but hopefully that will continue. One thing I think our listeners would be keen to hear about is how you found progressing through the legal sector with dyslexia and also how you've coped with some of the external and, I guess, internal um, pressures that come with it. I think especially at the early stages of my career, it was a real hindrance. Um, I think at that stage, because you're still learning, um, a lot of your peers kind of take you over, I think, because they can do things naturally that you don't. Um, so I think early on, I think there's a lot of people, um, including myself, kind of questioning whether I should even go down the law route at all. And I think there's a lot of people thinking whether I really have the skills to do it. Um, I would say that when I was training and qualifying, this was between about 2006 to about 2009. Even within this short period of time, the world is very different. So the understandings of neurodiversity are, 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 is much better now than it was. But yeah, no, I, I think early on, um, I didn't have the kind of support I have now. So kind of, kind of the embarrassment of your spelling and people picking you up on that and your grammar and not being able to do so yourself at that stage and not having some of the wonderful technology that we have around us now really impacted on me. But the one thing you, you also realize is that you have a lot of skills that other people don't. Um, so I've always felt that maybe because of my needs, I've always been good at kind of working with others and kind of bringing out the best of, of those around me. So you know, it's it's kind of, I suppose, identifying skills that you don't have and working with people who have those skills and ensuring that as a kind of team that you use those skills to, to help you overall. And I think because of that, that's helped me, um, especially later on in my career. I also think because I haven't been able to be an island by myself because I don't have the skills that a lot of people usually do, you know, it has always allowed me to build a kind of team mentality to everything I do, which means that, you know, your team is always kind of adapting to to what what is out there. You're always taking into account what people are saying and you can't, don't get stagnant. Um, and I think those kind of things, maybe if I, if I didn't have that requirement for other people in it, around me, um, that I think might have kind of hindered, um, say, the ability of my team to kind of grow in the way it has and maybe bringing in the people I, I have. Yeah, I think that's a really well. interesting point um, in terms of having a neurodivergent leader that your team does just kind of pull around you to fill those skills gaps and do identify the strengths and weaknesses. And ironically, I think that's what good teams are supposed to do anyway. It's just with neurotypical people, the strengths and weaknesses will be different to those of neurodivergent people or they'll be much more pronounced on either side of it. But beyond the kind of teamwork aspects of it, is there anything that you put in either for yourself in terms of a self-reasonable adjustment or your employer puts in for you? It's, it's, a, it's a bit of both, really. So I have, a, through a government scheme called Access to Work, I have support 
for a um, assistant who kind of checks over my work, helps me with my organization um, and ensures that I suppose we're on top of things that we're doing. Um, so I have at the moment 10 hours of support, which helps me kind of, you know, access my work environment. Um, but over the years, I've obviously developed other skills to and and ways of kind of picking up on things. So I've got a bit of a word blindness. So if I write out a, a um, an email, for instance, it might make complete sense to me, but anyone picking up that sentence wouldn't know what I was saying. So there are kind of programs out there, um, for instance, like Read and Write Gold, which read back what you said to you and um, allow you to kind of, I suppose, review it before it goes out. So those things kind of help. Um, dictation software, I've used that in the past. The problem I found with dictation software is it's often been um, inaccurate and with the same issues of me kind of having to go over the work to actually check that it is accurate by re listening to it, it can really slow me down. So uh, one of the things that um, Geldards have, have, have uh, invested in in the last year, which has actually been quite revolutionary for my whole team, actually, is uh, outsourced typing of a really high standard. And that has made such a difference to what we do. The speed at we, which we work, uh, you know, I think all of the team, no matter what their kind of backgrounds, have benefited from having access to that. And it's kind of really increased our productivity. Um, so I, th I think that, you know, technology is useful, but it only goes for so far. Access to work has, has been a kind of cornerstone, my ability to, access, um, to even get into the workplace, I suppose. Um, you know, I have other skills which are really good. So I'm very good at, um, at reading and kind of analyzing things and actioning things. And I think I... I do think differently from other people and maybe see problems a different way, which has really helped me in my kind of career as a whole. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't make any secret of the fact that I'm severely dyslexic. Everyone in my team knows that I'm severely dyslexic. And I think because hopefully I, I look at bringing lovely people into our team, um, you know, they, they help and compensate me for, for me in that way as well. So they know that, you know, I might require them to, to look at something and they'll support me with that. Or they might, I might ask them to do something on my behalf. Um, and they'll, they'll know that that's because of, you know, my dyslexia. So I'm, I'm very keen at ensuring that the environment that we create in the education team as a whole is open. Um, there are other members of my team who have, uh, neurodiversity as well. Um, and I want to create an environment where, you know, people are not embarrassed about their difficulties, but actually kind of wear it as a badge of honor in terms of how they work and how they, they want to proceed, pursue their careers, really. Yeah, I really like the holding it as a badge of honor sentiment. Having an environment where people feel safe and, I guess, willing to talk openly about it is really important. But also, like you say, removing those bureaucratic processes for asking for adjustments limits those feelings of being the odd one out, so to speak. I think also the fact that some of your adjustments help others much more widely than those with dyslexia, I think really speaks to how neurodiversity inclusion is not just an isolated thing. So thank you for that. If we now open the floor to Safia, um, but feel free to pitch in, Adam, could you start by giving us an overview of Geldard's recruitment process? So it does depend on the role. Um so most of our kind of general positions tends to be a CV and application form and then interviews. Um, there may be written assessments depending on what the position is. Um, and then our training contracts, obviously, as I'm sure you're aware, are very different. Um, they always are. There's more stages to the process. So there's the CV and application. There's a written assessment, an assessment centre and a partner panel. So those are kind of what we end up working with, Depend, you know, that, that will pretty much cover all of the positions we have. Um, and then we use the different kind of stages of that as different opportunities to get kind of new people in. Um, Fantastic. Go from Thank there. you. And at what stage, obviously, depending upon which role they're applying to, do you allow for people to ask for adjustments or at least have a conversation? 
So we're really, really open. Um, and I think, you know, we have been anyway, but very much taking Adam's lead in that being as open as possible and wearing these sort of things as a badge of honour. Um, our adverts make a note of saying we're happy to support. Just let us know what we can do to make the process better. Um, we know that it's not always necessarily a adjustment as such. It could just be a different way of doing something, um, you know, conversing over the phone rather than by email. You wouldn't really count that as an adjustment. Um, so we try and word it a little bit more open. Um, but we always check all the way through whenever we do kind of our application form has got an opportunity to put in there. If there's anything that you, you'd need, you require, you'd prefer. Um, before we do any sort of written assessment, we always check in. Um, we go through the application form, see if there's anything on there already. If there is or isn't, we always check in again, give somebody another opportunity to say, actually, I didn't want to say it at the beginning, but could I have extra time or whatever it is that they request? Um, and we just keep checking up throughout the process, to be honest. I mean, it always varies on the role, you know, what there is, you know, what there is in the interview stage, whether it's just a normal interview or not, um, whether there's the written assessment part, whether there's kind of partner panels or anything like that. So it's just being as open as possible through the entire recruitment process to see what we can do. Fantastic. Thank you. I think it's great that you give people the opportunity to disclose at any point during the um, assessment process and don't hold people to account for that, so to speak. Obviously, a lot of people do not like to disclose at the very beginning um, because they've had previous bad experiences or whatever it is. But I think that's a really positive step to be taking. Now, obviously, a big concern for a lot of neurodivergent people is, and this is a sentiment I get a lot in messages, is why would they hire me over someone who's neurotypical? Why would they hire me because I'm asking for additional stuff? In that regard, what does Geldard mainly look for um, in their staff? Is it kind of a one-size-fits-all model or is it wider than that? Yeah, to be honest, I wouldn't say there is an ideal applicant. It changes depending on the team. Um, every team works so differently in Geldards and everyone kind of brings something different to that team. We're always looking to expand rather than, I mean, I go around all the universities and I always say the last thing we want is a cookie cutter lawyer. We don't want people who look the same, who think the same, who act the same, because that's not what our clients are. Um, all of our clients are different, whether you're just doing one area of law or whether you're doing few, it doesn't make any difference. Each individual client is going to have a different need, is going to want to be communicated with differently um, and is going to come to us with a different problem. So we're always on the lookout for people who can bring something extra, who can be an addition to the team. I mean, it's like Adam said about his team, you are aware of the strengths in your team. Um, and I think it's something we do quite well and also aware of actually where we can add to that. So every position is going to be looking for something slightly different. We try and make that as open as possible all the way through. Um, but yeah, it, I wouldn't say that there's a strict list. I mean, we've recently done some recruitment, um, Adam and myself, and I'd say, you know, other than things that are, are necessary for the roles. So for example, for the training contracts, you've got to have your LPC and things like that. Obviously that's all changing, but at the moment got to have your LPC and things like that. Um, other than things that are strictly necessary for the role that you're applying to, it's all about kind of you as a person and what you can bring rather than what's on your piece of paper. That sounds great. Thank you. Um, so another thing that I wanted to bring up um, is that a lot of firms obviously do use that cookie cutter analogy and will say that they are looking for cognitive diversity and diversity of all other forms, but ask for the same grade requirements, the same experience requirements, which obviously for diversity does not always work. Um, and especially for neurodivergent people who may have gaps in CVs, who may have um, kind of grades which are much more up and down than the average person. How does the firm kind of accommodate that? How big is mitigation um, when you're taking those type of things into account? So we always look at everything as a whole. We know that people are so much more than a period of two years or three years or whatever it is. So 
we don't use technology in the recruitment process. So every CV and application is reviewed by a person. So we can see these things. We can see if it's a dip. We can see if, yeah, the, the grades aren't so strong there, but actually look at all of this experience, look at all of this hands-on work that somebody's got. They've obviously got something there. Um, so it's always something that we're really mindful of. Um, you know, things are different in everyone's lives, especially with the pandemic. So many people have had to take time out for such a variety of reasons. And I think as long as somebody can show in your CV, in your application form, wherever it is, um, that you're a strong candidate, if there's gaps in the CV, if there's, you know, grades that haven't quite come out how you expected, that's not a problem. Fantastic. Thank you. I can go on for absolutely hours about the pitfalls of AI and recruitment. Um, So I'm glad we don't have that. I did think it would be interesting to draw upon is the fact that obviously the firm has such um, a level of expertise um, in SEN and disability discrimination and stuff like that. Do you think that that aids um, both in the HR function and inducting new neurodivergent staff to the firm? Yeah, so I think we're really, really fortunate um, at Geldas that we've got so many experts um, and that everyone's so open. You know, it's not, we've picked Adam, Adam's come on this podcast because he out of everyone is the most open or anything like that. It's the same all the way across. And I think it's really important that we have that communication with the hiring managers, we have that communication with the different partners who are experts in their field who can give us advice, who can show us how works best, whether that's from what they do with a kind of Excel in law um, or whether that's just from personal experiences. We're always looking to make sure that that's as strong, as open um, and as easy as possible. We know it's so intimidating sometimes starting somewhere new, um, let alone starting in a new firm, in a new team, in a bigger team. We're always trying to kind of make it as obvious what's going to happen as possible. Um, We've recently started doing some blogs to follow the recruitment process to make it quite open, to let people know what to expect so they don't have that concern. Um, But yeah, I'd say our our kind of our partners, our solicitors, they're always fantastic. I mean, we can't ask a stupid question. Um, I know I've come to Adam before with some questions and I've kind of gone, oh, I I don't know if this is a really silly question. He's like, no, 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 it's fine. And we'll always be open to help, which is brilliant. They're the best questions. The, the ones that people are worried to ask, they're the best ones because they're usually <laughs> the ones which are right to the point and people are too embarrassed to ask. Um, I mean, I've worked in a couple of firms over the years and, you know, I, I have to say, Gerdot is what it says on the 10, which is open and friendly. I've always felt supported Um and, you know, I remember coming to Geldance myself and, you know, you do worry because you worry that you're going to go from the, you know, firing plan into the fire when you change firms. And I think that's worse when you, when you are, when you have your own difficulties, because you don't know how other firms are going to um, understand that and support that. And I've always, I, I always say this, I always wait for the honeymoon mo- moment to be over and there be more difficulties that, than there has been. I, it is really supportive. And I think it's testament to the fact that I, as Safi was saying, there are a number of people that I've met over the, um, in the firm who would count, count themselves as neurodiverse, um, who really always speak very highly um, of the environment that they work in. Um, and within my own team, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the only person with difficulties. There are actually quite a few on my team who have um, disabilities themselves in different ways. And, I know that they feel just as supported. In fact, I knew that I know that a lot of them were quite interested in your podcast and coming in themselves. So um, maybe for the future. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I really, having worked at some awful places, I remember some times when I was, I can't remember if I was a trainee or a paralegal, where I had someone supervising me who, whenever I got a spelling mistake wrong, would, would write in red letters, cross it out and write rot above it. And that was the kind of environment I had entered into. And, you know, that never brings out the best in anyone. You know, if you're in an environment where you're always second guessing yourself and wondering whether you've, you've got the kind of, I suppose, skills which are required, you're never going to perform at your maximum. You're always going to be worried about how people are going to perceive you. And as a consequence of that, you, 
that kind of attitude, I suppose, and kind of environment, none of the people who work in that environment usually do very well. Um, whereas if you go the opposite and you say, okay, well, how can we support this? What adjustments can we make to help you achieve? You tend to find that not only do you build a lot of kind of loyalty from those people, um, you also build an environment that people will actually want to be in. Um, and I know that <laughs> it's a hard thing to say, but I know that money is obviously something that people are always thinking about in terms of um, salaries and stuff when they kind of go into firms. But environment can be really king about above all those things. If you feel like you're in an environment which understands and wants to support you, that makes such a difference in in terms of your, I suppose, your life and your career as well. Yeah, brilliant point. Thank you both for that. Um, I think what you were saying before, Safia, about letting neurodivergent people know beforehand and, and other people what's to come um, in the recruitment process and making sure that they have as much information as possible is obviously really important. Um, but as Adam mentioned before, a lot of people are getting diagnosed later in life and they might not have that experience to know what they might need. I certainly didn't when I was applying to training contracts um, as an autistic person because I hadn't had that experience before. What advice can you give someone if they don't know what to ask in terms of adjustments? How do you kind of support them through that process? So that's where, again, I, I'm going to keep coming back to it. And I don't mean to kind of keep repeating myself, but it's being open. Um, I always make sure that my contact details are always out there. I'm on the firm's website um, so you can find me. Um, and I'm always over all over social media normally. Um, it's getting in touch and saying that this is what I struggle with. I, I don't know what to do. Um, it's not something I've been through before. Is is there something you can suggest? Is there something that we've done before? Um, and just having that conversation. And I think that comes from being so open from our end about what we are going to do, what we're going to kind of put you through, um, for want of a better phrase. Um, but kind of the process that you're going to go through, if you can see what's coming up, hopefully that'll give you the opportunity to even just have that discussion, picking up that phone, sending a message to say, look, I've seen that this is going to happen. Um, we've had it recently where somebody's seen that something was coming up and still wasn't quite sure. Um, so they got in touch and we were more than happy to kind of go back, pick up the phone, have a conversation and see what we could do to make it better. I mean. As you say, unless you try it, you're not going to know what's going to work best. And we're always happy to to see what we can do. Oh, fantastic. Um, so just as a final question on recruitment, then, is there anything more that either of you would like to see in the recruitment process or amendments you'd like to see to the recruitment process to be even more inclusive um, going forward? I think it's a difficult one. Um, it's always something that we're looking to improve on. So we're always kind of looking out, doing different training, having conversations with people who've come through the process, um, both from an internal and external perspective. And yeah, I think, you know, there's, it's never going to end. I think it's something that we're always going to be looking to improve. I think continuous improvement is the only way to go when it comes to recruitment processes, um, learning from the feedback that we have. So I have no idea where it's going to go. Um, I'm quite excited to see. I'm excited to hear from people who've been through the process. I love doing things like this to see what more we can do, um, to see what suggestions people have. So, yeah, it's, it's quite a difficult one to answer because, I mean, we're always, you know, we're so open to changing it up. We're so open to kind of making the process better that actually we don't always know where that's going to go you know, we're always excited to, to find out. Hard question to answer. I mean, with Safi, I think part of it I completely agree with, which is, you know, you've got to be flexible with the, with changing times and ensuring that, you know, you do adapt to, you know, people with disabilities. I suppose the other side is, I know it's a, a, something which makes people very vulnerable, but being open about your difficulties, I think can be really important because, before you even got to that interview stage, if you're open about your difficulties, I think I've always, well, it depends. I've always found it as, as something which would make me look at a CV and think, oh, I actually want to interview this person. Um, I 
when I started my career, I used to hide the fact that I was dyslexic and you get found out in about two seconds in an interview and you get found out about a second in a, in a job itself. So I, I changed it. I actually put my dyslexia at the top of my CV, basically, and explained what it what it was and why I felt it made me good at what I did. And I actually found that I got more interviews from that and more understanding from from environments that I was going into um, because they'd seen that on my CV. Um, and, you know, it, if you're severely dyslexic like myself and you've had to go to specialist dyslexic schools and you've fought all of that way and you've had to deal with all those difficult uh, educational experiences and growing up in that kind of difficult um, with, with a lot of difficulties, if you can get to the stage of an interview with a law firm, then you've clearly got something about you, which hopefully demonstrates to that person why they should interview you. If you don't know that and you see a CV and as you were talking earlier about kind of grades and everything, and there seems to be gaps in it and there isn't really an explanation, that might lead to an environment not even looking at you when they really should because you're actually quite a special candidate. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, for me as well, like you say, before being completely open about it, I was not having great success because I was trying to kind of make myself into something that I wasn't. And then when I started kind of bringing up the fact I was autistic about 300 times during an interview, I'm sure they were very sick of me by the end of it. Um, they they seemed to like me more. So I think sometimes that that being open and, and talking about it and being transparent can be really beneficial to applications. Um, so thank you for that. Um. So moving on to kind of the wider firm approach to neurodiversity, we've kind of covered quite a lot of this already, so I'll try not to uh, get you to repeat stuff. Um, but one thing we haven't kind of drawn upon yet, and I think from what you're saying, it's it's perhaps not as necessary, but of course we need to consider it, is the idea of unconscious bias um, and more active biases that people may have. How does the firm kind of tackle those things that people might come into the firm with um, and then they're, they're faced with, with Adam and don't necessarily know how to, to interact or um, kind of deal with that side of things. See, I'd say again, it's again, coming back to that openness. Um, so obviously we get a lot of training. Um, we're constantly looking to be better. We're constantly looking to improve um, whether that's normal day-to-day -day work or whether that's on things like bias and, and unconscious bias, especially. Um, it's being open with each other so we've done kind of various things in the past we've had kind of this is me podcast um, which is just internal it didn't go out anywhere else but it was just a chance for people to talk about how they got into law who they are what they do I think by being a person rather than being a piece of paper um, to each other as well so it's not just kind of applicants being open to us we want to be as open as we can to show that that is the culture and that that is okay I think it's only through doing things like that that you build that environment then where you can be more open where you can ask questions where it is you know it, it it's okay um but yeah I think I think it's something that there's always room for improvement but training and just talking and it not being these sort of things not being a taboo subject um, but being celebrated, you know, Neurodiversity Celebration Week was a few weeks ago and we had great fun and we had one of um, one of our kind of internal, uh, one of our solicitors, sorry, did a blog about how they're a parent to a child with autism. Um, and we had a, com we've got a comment section on the internet and it, it was fantastic. The comments within about five minutes of it, us posting it the comment section was filled with people talking about it having a discussion um supporting it and you know comparing it to their own experiences um so i think it's very much about kind of what we put into it i was, I was gonna say like just taking out the disability um i think girl dogs really pride itself on being open and friendly and i remember coming to the firm originally and being told about its open and friendly culture and almost rolling my eyes because, you know, everyone says that they, you know, it's their kind of mantra to become open and friendly and they want their, it's, it's their objective to be something like that. But very few places actually are what they say they're trying to be. And instead of making it an objective to be, 
it's nice that you actually are in something which is actually that. And with Geldods, I've always found it to actually be open and friendly. Um, you know, like everyone, even I have those questions which I think are stupid and being able to ask people around me what their views are and not be shouted down or embarrassed by it, I think is an amazing place to be. Um, so I think if you have that culture to start off with, it's much easier to build a platform, um, a platform for other people um, with disabilities to be able to be open about that and to discuss them with everyone. Um, so I, I think the culture... One thing I've learned from working other firms and getting to where we are to date, I think one thing I've really noticed is the culture. Um, if you start with a good culture, it trickles down. And I think if you are what you say you are and you are saying you're open and friendly and you actually are, then I feel people feel more comfortable to be kind of open about their difficulties, which is beneficial to everyone because then you can put the support in place and it usually makes the environment more efficient um, anyway. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it kind of leads into what I was thinking next, which was obviously in the sector there, there's quite a lot of stuff at the moment for more junior people coming in, um, in terms of neurodiversity. But one of the issues that is stated in numerous pieces of research is that a lot of more senior people don't disclose, um, or don't feel comfortable disclosing. Um, how, do you think we can make those people feel more comfortable to disclose at that very senior level? Um, is that also to do with culture and openness or is there kind of an added layer to that? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's a, it is about the culture. I think if you've got a culture which is open and I think you've got a culture where people feel they can say, well, you know, my spelling and grammar has been terrible throughout my legal career. And, you know, I think that if you were able to say that, feel confident saying that around a load of other lawyers, then you're probably in the right kind of setting. And um, one of one of the very senior lawyers uh, actually at Geldard said that to me once. And I said, you might want to look at a diagnosis of dyslexia. And he said, it's probably too late for me. Um, but that's the point, isn't it? It's, he felt open enough to say to, to someone he didn't know very well, which is me. I, I work in London and I think he was based in uh, Cardiff. That if he felt open enough to say that, that, that says a lot about the environment you're in. Um, I have worked in some other environments which have not been so friendly, where I think your your disabilities or your things that you feel embarrassed about have been used, I suppose, as something against you. And, you know, I think you have to get your own mindset about being proud of your difficulties and, and seeing them as a real strength. But if you're in that kind of environment, it can take you some time to see that and to see that maybe you're not in the right place. Um, so I think environment is key wherever you are in terms of your career. I think a lot of it is people as well. It's having those conversations. It's yeah. having those people who do struggle being honest. Um, we're very fortunate in kind of having people like Adam who are very honest, um, who are happy to talk to us, who are happy to kind of share his story. And I think the more people like him that you see, the more comfortable you are in kind of seeing and going, oh, actually, yeah, he's really successful. He's done really well. He is an expert in his field. And no, and the fact that he's dyslexic doesn't make a difference to that. The fact that he's had these struggles doesn't make a difference detrimentally to the knowledge that he has. Maybe people won't think the same if I say it. Um, and I think it's having those conversations, having these sort of people. Um, I think that that's one of the things that really drives the openness and really gives other people the opportunity to be honest. I think yeah moving away from that kind of traditional hierarchical structure sometimes is, is really beneficial to see you know like you say that the people at the top don't all mm. fit this one mold um, yeah. and that's the only way to be successful which is, is clearly not true um, so just two final questions then the first thing I wanted to ask was obviously we've mentioned before the kind of intersection with mental health in terms of um, neurodiversity um, how does Geldars ensure the well-being of its neurodivergent and, I mean, even wider, wider stuff? Um, so we've actually got a well-being group, um, which I could sit here and talk about for hours. So I'll try and keep it quite short. Um, we have, you know, we've done a lot of things. We've understood mental health is something that's become more and more prevalent over the last few years anyway. Um, it's something we've always looked at. As part of HR, we've always done whatever we can to support 
um, whether that's with kind of external employee assistance programs or whether that's with kind of mental health first aiders. So our HR team has always been fully mental health first aider trained. Um, but I think especially over the last few years, it's just being more honest about it. Um, and people have been a lot more honest about their struggles. And we've had the opportunity then to put more in place um, and just getting together and speaking to each other, um, doing different events. Um, we've had different training sessions. We've had different opportunities for just completely getting away from work. I mean, I don't do law myself, but I know from talking to lawyers all the time that it's, it's a really stressful thing to do. It's really full on. Um, you tend to soak up a lot of your clients' emotions, especially when you're in these really emotive areas. So actually, sometimes one of the most helpful things for your mental health is just switching off, but with people around you. Um, so we've had really silly things like dog trick training classes and just completely off the wall things that you don't need to think about work at all. Um, but obviously there are kind of the more serious, we've got mental health first aiders in a variety of teams now um, spread across all the offices. We've had people at all levels being open about struggles. Um, we're really fortunate, as I've kind of said before, with this kind of top-down approach. You know, our chairman is fantastic. Um, during the pandemic, he was doing blogs just internally, just kind of keep everyone's spirits up and just say, look, this is hard. This is tough. Um, we're going through a difficult time anyway. If you've got any other things that you're struggling with, if you've got any other things that are impacting you on top of that, it is a really, really difficult thing to do. Um, so we've done what we can to kind of provide different things. We've been really fortunate recently we've seen less of a need um which has been fantastic so obviously everything's still there we've got a entire well-being hub on the internet which everyone can access at any time we've got the mental health first aiders we've got different events and things like that but we've had the opportunity now where we can kind of step away a little bit um and do it with a more social aspect um obviously we've you know we've had all of our managers and things like that everyone's been trained on mental health um how to support people in the office how to speak to people how to just start a conversation um but we found actually recently the things that seem to be the most popular is just stopping just having tea and cake and sitting down with other people and talking about where we've been, what we've worked through, where our struggles have been and how we've got through the other side. And then the people who haven't quite got there yet can can talk about that. They can be honest. Um, it's similar to kind of Adam being so open with his story. We try and keep that at all levels. So that's really important in, in when it comes to our team, mental health and well-being. I, think, firm, I think we always look out for each other and we're always kind of open to discussing how we're feeling, talking about the workloads, um, talking about people being overloaded. And we do try and address that. Um, we try as much as we can to ensure that when you come into the office or you're working from home, that you're actually enjoying your time in work. And given how much time we all spend at work, that's really important. Um, I've always been quite because of, I suppose, having bad experiences, as I say, at working at other places, we've always been kind of very conscious about building a kind of team mentality where you can discuss your emotions and you can kind of discuss how you're feeling. You can put your hand up and say, you know, actually, I, I think I need some more guidance with what I'm doing here in terms of work or, you know, I am overloaded. And we will discuss it as a team, as a whole, to try and you know, help that person or help a number of um, people in the team kind of, um, I suppose, address their kind of issues if we can. Um, I think we're very fortunate by that. Um, again, it comes down to culture. Um, I think having the wellbeing team is really important. I think it was especially important um, during the lockdowns to have that kind of access to those types of groups. I also think on a day-to-day -day level, just being, I think, in an, un an understanding environment where being able to talk about your feelings and emotions is not used against you is, is seen as something that 
if we can support, we'll help you. Um, and that sounds like an obvious thing. But again, I kind of revert back to what I said. You can work in, in cultures and environments where talking about how you feel um, is, is seen as a weakness. Um, and, you know, expressing your emotions about struggling um, is seen as maybe demonstrating that you, you might not um, be good enough to be in the law or, or something like that. And it's total nonsense. In most situations, it's, it's about kind of getting the right guidance to support. And where it's come in, um, I, I've always felt and seen people do very well. Um, and, you know, I think when people are themselves, you were talking earlier about people maybe having difficulties, but not having any kind of diagnosis. If you recognize that someone might be going on that journey, they may not be ready to say what they're thinking, but it's important, I think, to kind of um, make them feel when they are kind of getting there that if they do want to talk about it and they do want that support, you're there. Um, I've helped quite a lot of people I know, not just at Geldods, but outside of um, in other professions, kind of get support getting a diagnosis and also getting support like access to work in place um, or kind of just kind of advice about how to deal with an environment which might be more toxic um, and I think just being a good I suppose ambassador to those kind of behaviors and and ensuring you're a good ambassador to I suppose mental health as a whole is, is really important. Fantastic, thank you. The final question is actually for you, Adam. Uh, I know we've had you speaking quite a lot on here, um, but is if you could start your legal career again in 2022 as a neurodivergent lawyer, what advice would you give yourself and what would you change, if anything at all? I'm not allowed to say don't become a lawyer. I mean, if you want, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I suppose it's that it's don't give up. I, I, I think certainly when I was training and going becoming a lawyer sometimes it really felt like I was crawling not certainly not striding through it and because I didn't give up it kind of allowed me to get to where I am today and I think it it made my journey into law a bit different um and I think that kind of life experience has made me really good at what I do now so I think that's the thing if I was talking to myself again I might say that I'd say don't give up that kind of experience of life and doing things slightly differently is going to make you a really good lawyer down the track. And, you know, you don't get taught when you become a lawyer how to manage people. You don't get taught how to manage teams. So actually recognizing that those skills and developing those as you go through your legal career are really going to help you later on. Fantastic advice. Thank that, that you. That wasn't quite a sentence, was it? It was more of a, <laughs> a monologue. But there we are. <laughs> no one can ever get in a sentence, but yeah, just uh, taking notes for my own training contract. So thank you both Adam and Safia for coming on our podcast this afternoon. I have really enjoyed listening to both of your insights. I hope everyone enjoyed listening to that as well. See you next week for another episode.